It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Tuesday, October 13, 2020. On episode 141 today, we have Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines. Here's Hershey. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. The topic I've chosen today to speak about is about migration and immigration. And the reason that I thought about it was because uh, this week, uh, the uh, American government just announced that they were cutting their quota for refugees to coming, for coming to the States to 15,000 a year, which is the absolute lowest that it's ever been. Uh, the United States has always been a country that has welcomed refugees. And since this Trump administration began, they cut the quota from 60,000 to 15,000. And even 60,000 is a very small number. In addition, he's also cut the quota for legal immigration uh, roughly in half. Um, And he's done everything to stop people from coming into the United States any which way. And so that gave me the the thought of looking at, you know, why people move around, what are the historical background of migration, immigration, and it's an interesting subject. So... uh, you know, that was kind of where I got started with that. It's also important because um, the uh, arrival of migrants or refugees has caused political upheaval in so many countries in Europe. And um, especially, for example, in Great Britain, which I think the Brexit vote was really um, motivated by people who were afraid of outsiders coming into the country the rise of right-wing governments uh, and right-wing political parties in France, in Germany, in Hungary, in um, uh, Finland, in Sweden, uh, in Denmark, in Holland. All of these places have right-wing parties whose main platform is not some kind of an economic platform, but is some sort of an exclusionary platform to... um, to prevent outsiders from coming into the country, and especially outsiders of a different background. Um, So that's why uh, it's an important subject, uh, and it's an ongoing subject, and it's worthwhile having a quick look at it from a historical point of view. I'll talk about uh, immigration and migration in all the different places through different periods of history, and we'll bring ourselves up to Today, to answer the question um, whether migration or immigration is something good for society, is it good for the countries receiving the immigrants, is it good for the countries from which they left, and, uh, or vice versa. So, um, you know, that kind of the, uh, kind of the uh, idea of it. And, you know, we'll get a chance to learn lots of little facts about um, Um, migration and immigration and, uh, uh, you know, different places like that. So we have to start off by saying this, that uh, the idea of people moving around has always been with us. And um, even in prehistoric times, in in ancient times, before human beings were um, uh, uh, around, our ancestors, moved so far as to cover all of um, Africa and Asia, where, you know, remains of uh, half a million year old uh, skeletons are found. 
And um, for human beings, for Homo sapiens, we all lived in Africa somewhere around 150,000 years ago. And uh, anywhere from around 100 to 70,000 years ago, uh, we moved. And from a you know, small basis, we ended up populating the old continents of Asia, Europe, um, uh, you know, of course, Africa, where we came from, and Australia, and then later on to North and South America only 20,000 years ago. So human beings have always been on the move. It didn't need uh, airplanes or ships to do it, and uh, that's one of the constants of human history. Um, there's always reasons for people to move. Sometimes people are pushed, sometimes people are pulled, and sometimes uh, movement is a result of both. Um, people move for better lives, for better livelihoods. They move to rejoin, to join families, to get better jobs. Um, they are pushed out of their countries by war, by climate change, by poverty, by discrimination, um, uh, etc. Uh, so there are people that are sort of voluntary movers and involuntary movers, and sometimes it's a sort of a mixture of both that you kind of, you know, for example, uh, let's say we're talking about the Jewish community in the 19th century Tsarist Russia, you know, there was a pull to America by the, the wealth and openness of the country, and there was also a push to get out because of anti-Semitism and pogroms and things like that. So it's you know, it's not one or the other. Um, and, uh, you know, it's worthwhile to distinguish between refugees and immigrants, although in the olden times, there was no such of a uh, distinction. But um, immigrants are people who make a choice to um, move and to, uh, you know, perhaps do it in a, in a formal way. And refugees are people who just pick up whatever they have and run. Um, overall, in the world today, about 90% of people who have moved are migrants, we'll call them, and uh, the other 10% are refugees. But it, again, it's not a, fine, not a hard distinction when you think of people from Guatemala or Honduras uh, or El Salvador moving, leaving those Central American countries, violence and poverty filled, uh, and you know, going up north. It's a kind of a mixture of the two aspects that is pushing them out. So um, I'm just going to review briefly some of the world's major movements. Of course, it's important to realize that um, since people have been moving around forever and ever, and since we've only have written history down to uh, somewhere around uh, 1000 BC, all the movements and all the peoples who came and went before that um, you know, their history is lost, so we really have no real idea about them. You know, uh, nowadays, though, with genetics, we're able to do some very interesting work. Uh, I was reading today about uh, the um, percentage of Neanderthal genes in uh, everyone uh, in the world except for Africans. And, um, and you know, the, the intermarriage of different um, species of humans, uh, which went on uh, even down to 30,000 years ago. It's quite interesting. But today we're the only ones left. But we are a mixture of uh, actually different, different 
um, different uh, branches of the human family. And some people have up to 6% non-homo sapien genes in them, uh, especially people in, uh, in Asia um, or in uh, Australia uh, who have uh, some strong relatives on the non-human side of, uh, of um, you know, uh, evolution. Um, <clears throat> well, let's talk, about <clears throat> let's talk about Europe, first of all. So some of these things we've known are well known of huge migrations. The Celtic people uh, moved uh, uh, in 1000 BC from North and East Europe to Western Europe. Um, many of you may not realize, for example, that Hungarians um, only arrived in Europe in, eight, in the 800s that uh, before that time there were no Hungarians in Europe and Romans never mentioned Hungarians and these are tribes that arrived from Asia uh, around that time. Similarly, Turks never lived in Europe and they moved from the 800 to 1100 from Asia into Turkey and, and into uh, Southeastern Europe. Uh, Slavs, a uh, long time before that and Bulgars moved in from southern Russia into uh, today's Eastern Europe. Uh, Saxons and Danes, uh, the Anglo-Saxons and Danes moved from uh, Germany and Denmark into England. Uh, Finns came to Finland from Asia, also not very long ago. Um, and uh, those are some of the sort of older historical migrations. Um, there were some what you call what we would call elite migrations, meaning that, say, Greeks and Romans uh, went to populate um, cities and places in Europe, uh, not in huge numbers, but because they were the cultural elite and the rulers, they were able to convince other people living there to assimilate to their culture and their language. So, um, you know. Uh, Movement is interesting and has interesting uh, causes and interesting results. In, in, you know, much closer to today, in Europe, there have been a huge movement of Turks to Germany in the 1960s when Germany needed all that uh, labor. Um, Armenian refugees uh, moved from uh, Turkey into uh, France and um, uh, other places in Europe after the massacres in 1915. Um, refugees uh, in, in uh, one of the huge, uh, largest movement of people that uh, we may not remember is that after the Second World War, 17 million Germans were kicked out of um, parts of Poland, Russia, Czechoslovakia uh, because uh, they lost the war. And German-speaking communities were not welcome in those countries anymore. So 17 million of them were kicked out. There was also a kind of a movement of peoples, of, um, of Polish people out of uh, Polish people out of Eastern Poland, which was taken over by the Soviet Union, and pushed into Western Poland, which Poland was given from Germany to given by Germany. So those are some of the big movements. Uh, you know, since the, um, since the 1960s, since the 1960s or 70s or even later, of course, we now have a huge movement of 
non-Europeans into Europe from uh, many are refugees from the civil wars in Syria and Afghanistan, uh, from poverty in Pakistan, um, uh, from North Africa, uh, from poverty in North Africa and, and, and in black Africa itself moving north, um, you know, sometimes in boats going across the Mediterranean into Italy and Spain and from there spreading into the rest of Europe. It's quite remarkable that today, Europe of today looks nothing like the Europe of say 1955 or 1960, uh, whereby uh, there was one huge um, majority of people living in many countries, for example, Italians in Italy or Dutch in Holland. Today, many of these countries are more than 10% foreign born. Um, and many of them have non, huge non-Western um, uh, minorities who are uh, either assimilated or not assimilated, depending on the situation, but who are definitely part of the um, fabric of those societies. And as I mentioned at the beginning, they, um, they, the, their presence sometimes sometime causes uh, uh, political reactions in that, um, you know, there's a feeling that some of these groups are not assimilatable, uh, that they pose a, uh, a security threat to the country, etc. And it's hard to know how much of it is prejudice and how much of it is based on uh, reality or exceptional circumstances. But Germany is the one country in Europe which received the most uh, migrants uh, post-war. And, um, uh, you know, uh, they are also the largest country in Europe today. And they are also the country in Europe which has not sort of turned their backs on the arrival of people from the uh, outside of Europe. Um, in, uh, I should mention also that in 1923 in Europe, there was this huge population exchange of millions of people between Greece and Turkey um, after the First World War and the establishment of Turkey. Um, uh, practically all the Greeks living in Turkey moved to Greece and practically all the Turks living in Greece moved to Turkey as part of an, a kind of an international agreement. Um, and... Um, that was one of the largest population transfers in, in Europe, um, uh, you know, to date. The largest actual movement of people, though, uh, in numbers, was the movement of people from Europe to North America over a uh, hundred odd years from the uh, middle 1800s until uh, the middle 1900s. And uh, people came from all over Europe to populate the United States and uh, Canada and uh, South America, Argentina, Uruguay. And these people were mainly economic immigrants. They were looking for better lives. Uh, people came uh, from um, Germany, uh, sometimes as a result of civil war there, and then from Italy, Ireland, uh, and Russia to uh, get better lives and, um, you know, their descendants are today the people who, um, who are the vast majority of people in, in North America. Um, other huge migrations um, uh, in Asia, uh, you know, we can go back to 
the natives uh, uh, leaving Asia, moving into North America some 20,000 years ago. Uh, people uh, moving from what is today Afghanistan into India, the Aryans. Um, Arabs moving from Saudi Arabia up into the Middle East. Uh, Mongols going into Central Asia. And, you know, last but not least, Jews coming from all around the world to go live in Israel. Um, the largest population exchange, similar to the one I spoke about in Europe, was after the partition of India. And there were millions and millions of people who moved from India to Pakistan, the newly uh, created Pakistan, and vice versa. So... Practically all the Hindus and Sikhs who were living in what became Pakistan moved to India. Um, and many, many Muslims who were living in India moved to Pakistan. The total number of people who moved in these, in these cases were 17 million. And half a million were killed in clashes and uh, massacres uh, while this whole thing was happening. So that was an enormous population exchange. Uh, kind of uh, informal in a certain way. Uh, it wasn't something agreed to by the governments, but people just picked up and ran for their lives. Um, in Africa, there have been lots of movements. Um, the uh, people who were living in Southern Africa uh, were not the people who live there today. Um, the, the original inhabitants were people who um, uh, you might remember as Bushmen or the San people who were kind of very uh, short, small hunters and gatherers, but um, Africans moved down from Central Africa into Southern Africa, uh, Bantu-speaking people, and took over. Um, people from uh, Sudan moved into Egypt, Nubians moved into Egypt uh, as a big wave. Um, interestingly enough, and I, this is a fact many people may not realize, that the island of Madagascar off of Africa was uninhabited until 500 AD. And uh, people moved there from uh, Asia, from Indonesia, uh, starting in 500 AD. It was the last large uninhabited place um, in the world at that time. Um, also in Africa, the Arabs moved westward from um, from Egypt uh, into uh, North Africa and displaced the Berber population who are native to, to there. Um, when we come again to North America, of course, we know that and North and South, the um, people moved from Asia, walked over the bridge to get here. Uh, Europeans after 1500 came in. Slaves were brought into North and South America and the Caribbean starting in 1600. Maybe close to half a million slaves were brought in. And after 1960, when things opened up, the whole world started to move to, um, to North America and South America. And today in Canada, for example, people from China and India are our biggest uh, contributors of immigrants. Uh, in the United States, it's people from Latin America, especially Mexico, who, uh, who, do, who do that. Um, so, how, what, you know, how is it that immigrants are coming? What, 
what is it that makes it easier for immigrants to come? Um, you know, the, the rise of good transportation, economic development, when people have some money. Very often, it's not the very poorest of poor people who leave because they don't have the means even to kind of get out of their towns and villages. But it's people who have some money, some connection, some knowledge, some desire and willpower to improve their lives. Uh, better transportation, uh, of course, is a big factor. Uh, you know, at one time, so many people were killed trying to move uh, on, on sinking ships. And nowadays we have more security, except, of course, the refugees leaving Africa to try and cross the Mediterranean, which, you know, you'd be nuts to do that in the middle of winter. Um, the, uh, the Industrial Revolution in Europe, the coming of the machine age, meant there was a huge demand for labor and uh, people to work on these machines and therefore people moved sometimes from one country or another to get a job. Um, and uh, this movement, of course, is not only between countries but within countries. So depending on the economic status in, within a certain country, people did move around a lot from one place to another and are still doing it. Religious conflicts are another big cause of migration can think of the Crusades, which um, uh, sort of uh, blew through Europe for 200 years. The Inquisition, which kicked the Jews out of Spain and Portugal. Um, the Thirty Years' War in, in, in Europe between the Protestants and the Catholics uh, forced people to either convert or leave uh, German provinces. The uh, establishment of the uh, English church um, in England forced um, people who were Protestants but not uh, from the Church of England to move out. And that's, in a sense, how the United States got its start. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, many uh, countries had a very exclusive religious policy. And here in, in French Canada, if you were not a Catholic, you were not allowed to live here. Um, and uh, so religious minorities moved when, when they could to more welcoming places, like, for example, uh, in Holland, uh, parts of Switzerland, um, you know, uh, North and South America for Jews uh, after 1881. Um, and of course, Israel, who which welcomed Jews uh, from the beginning until today. Uh, so that's religious conflicts, and I mentioned the ones between the Muslims and Hindus in in Asia, uh, huge source of uh, migration over there. Poverty in uh, Europe, Italy, Norway, Ireland, uh, people moved out from there uh, to. United States, Canada, and Australia, and China. Um, uh, I mean, it, it, China poverty in China led to emigration to all kinds of places in East Asia, like Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, and, um, you know, un unless you get the idea that people are moving so much today, uh, the biggest wave of movement in in the world really was between that 1880s up to the First World War period. Um, 
1913, it was the biggest year for immigration uh, to both Canada and the United States. Uh, in 1913, Canada received half a million immigrants in one year, which is 7% of the population. And by sheer chance, my grandfather was one of those people who came in that year. Uh, similarly, the United States had the same figures, but you can multiply them by at least 10. So millions of people moved in, at a time when the U US and Canada were not that big. So for today, for Canada receiving, say, 300,000 immigrants, which is about uh, under 1% under of our population, it's a far smaller percentage than we were receiving before the uh, First World War. Um, now let's speak a little bit about internal migration. So uh, uh, we know that people are moving around within countries, as I mentioned. There has been over the last, at least since 1950, a move from the countryside to the cities because of better job uh, uh, availability, because of education possibilities. Uh, and of course, migration is like a chain. So once one person goes, they pull the next one and the next one, etc. goes that way. Um, so urbanization is something which happened very gradually uh, at first, and after the Industrial Revolution, you know, it increased very quickly. But even up to 200 years ago, by the vast majority of people, both in Europe and in Asia and in Africa and North America, lived in the countryside uh, and were farmers or were people who catered to the farmers, the small tradesmen and shopkeepers, etc. Um, so it's only really been since the Industrial Revolution that cities started to grow. And of course they haven't stopped growing. So today we have cities in the world of more than 20 million people each. Um, you know, places like Tokyo, uh, Mexico City, for example, Cairo. These are enormous cities compared to even what they used to be 50 years ago. But people are continuing to move to the cities from the countryside. Um, in uh, Canada, we had movement just to talk about our own little uh, immigration story. Um, you know, uh, we went through a period of quite strong depression in the 1890s, and a lot of people moved to the United States at that time. Big movements of French Canadians uh, moved to the U.S. Of course, we had the forcible removal of French Canadians from Nova Scotia, in 1755, who formed the Acadian population in Louisiana. Um, uh, when slavery finished in the United States, um, there was a period of uh, 50 years of solid repression of blacks in the South. And um, they started to leave the South when the economy of the North started to pick up. And the 7 million blacks moved from the southern states to the northeast and to the Midwest, to your cities like Chicago, New York City, etc., uh, as well as 20 million whites who left the south after the Civil War and moved up to the north and to the west. Um, then there was another large movement of people during the Dust Bowl in the 1930s when the central U.S., Kansas, Oklahoma especially, and Nebraska, Kansas uh, dried up. People moved to California. Um, Latin American people 
uh, have moved from um, Puerto Rico to uh, New York, New Jersey. Mexican people moved to California. Um, and uh, in the sort of post-war period, the opening and the growing of the West and the South drew people from the Northeast, uh, you know, uh, sun, sun uh, seekers and retirees moving down South um, to Florida and Arizona. And so people, uh, you know, in the U.S. have always moved around. Generally speaking, today in the U.S., the, the fastest growing areas are the Western, Southern and Western parts of the country. And the slowest growing areas are the what's called the Rust Belt, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, all the places that are in, in uh, up to up in play now in the U.S. elections. In Canada, we've had similarly movements for starting from the countryside to the cities, and then we've had a, a western migration of people to go out west, especially to Alberta and British Columbia. Um, we had a movement of people from Newfoundland to Alberta to work in the oil fields. Of course, we had our own movement of, of English-speaking people out of Quebec after the passing of the Bill 101. So those are some of the kind of, uh, you know, uh, historical movements of people today, um, uh, up to today. Let's talk about today. Let's talk about... Uh, uh, just check my time here. Okay. Let's talk about uh, what's going on these days in immigration. Um, the countries receiving the most immigrants today are the U.S., Germany. This is the countries where, where that have the greatest number of immigrants living in them. I'll put it like that. The U.S., Germany, Russia, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. Um, the countries that have the most people living abroad are India, Mexico, and Russia. So interestingly enough, Russia both receives immigrants and sends immigrants out. The ones they receive are, are people from poorer countries around them, especially Central Asian countries and, um, and uh, the Ukraine and Belarus. And uh, Russians leaving Russia are people who, uh, you know, are uh, migrating to the West to get better lives and better economic situations. Um, there's also a lot of movement, not, not only from, we'll call them from advanced countries to advanced countries, but from poorer countries to poorer countries. So a lot of movement goes from south to south or from north to north, and it not always goes from south to north, or from poor to rich. Um, um, it was estimated in 2019 that 270 million people in the world have migrated, or they form an average of about 3.5% of the populations of the countries that they live in. Uh, you know, obviously in some countries, they form more than half of the population. In other countries, they form almost no, none of the population. There are a few tiny little countries and islands that have no immigrants living there whatsoever, like St. Helena or, to, or uh, Tuvalu. The, uh, Tuvalu is an island country in the Pacific, and they have no immigrants at all living in that country. Um, other places, 
uh, you know, there are more immigrants living in the country than there are native born people. And that especially um, refers to the Kuwait and Qatar and the United Arab Emirates where they've recruited workers to basically do all the jobs in the country. But these people never are able to get citizenship. So it's a different form of migration. It's a sort of a labor migration, but it's a kind of a permanent labor migration. Uh, Canada is the eighth biggest destination for immigrants after Germany, Saudi Arabia, the United States, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The, the countries that have exported most people uh, in the last uh, several years, uh, India is number one, Mexico two, China, Russia, Syria, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Philippines, and Afghanistan. So when you look at this group of countries, you could sort of figure out, you know, that many people who leave these countries are doing it for economic reasons. Some of them are doing it for political reasons, uh, uh, you know, like Syria and, Af and Afghanistan. And uh, of course, we all know of uh, people uh, from the Philippines who, who sort of um, make it their life's goal to get educated there and then leave to work abroad in better, uh, well-off countries and send money home. So, and, that, and that is the sort of pattern in many, many different places. Uh, the single biggest migration route uh, was from Mexico to the U.S. Um, you know, the President Trump has tried to cut that off and has cut that off. But, you know, if we look at the last 50 years, uh, that route has been the biggest single route of immigration. Um, the um, the uh, migrants, once they come to the countries that they live in, uh, obviously, you know, they don't forget their home roots. And the amount of money that these people send back to their homes, in some cases, uh, are make a huge um, contribution to the economies of their countries back home. So to give you an idea, for example, in India, they send $80 billion a year, uh, no, it's $80 billion back to India um, uh, uh, per year. And Philippines is 34 billion, which uh, in some cases, in the case of Philippines, almost 10% of their whole economy comes from money sent back by migrants. In the case of India, it's 3%, Egypt is 8%, Pakistan 6 and Vietnam 6 So people who do leave um, make a huge contribution to the economies and to their families back home. Not only that, but many of them, uh, have as a goal to save up money living abroad and move back to their home countries to retire or move back to their home countries to set up businesses and invest in the country, build um, homes or build uh, other um, forms of business. And so migration is sometimes like a kind of a loop. People will leave their country, go save up money and come back to their home country to, uh, to live. And in, in that way, Immigration or migration is a positive, both for the host country and for the uh, and for the uh, sending off country. Um, so we can ask the question, you know, uh, you know, is migration? Let's ask the following question: Is migration good or bad for the receiving country? And uh, of course, you know, the answer is mixed in a certain way. 
the um, advantages to the receiving country are many. Um, they receive new employees, uh, generally speaking, people who are ready to work right away. Uh, very often, it's not the case that uh, very elderly people are going to move to a country and then need health or hospital care because they're too old to move in the first place. Uh, similarly, uh, although many people do move with children, it's more common to have sort of people in the prime of their lives move, get a job, start working, and then, you know, raise a family or send for their families back home to bring them. So they have instant workers. And in societies like uh, we have in the Western world, where the birth rate is so low as to not be, not be, um, not keep up with the reproduction, the reproduction rate does not keep up with the population. Uh, if you have, uh, as we have here, under two children per family, then who is going to be doing the jobs of the people who are getting older? And it has to be migrants or immigrants. And so they fill a, a, you know, a, a gap right away. Of course, immigrants who come to countries could be classified as either high-skilled or low-skilled. The high-skilled ones can fit in easier and get jobs easier, especially if they know the language. The low-skilled ones may um, uh, have difficulties at the beginning, but there are many places that need low-skilled workers. Um, you know, we all know about the agricultural community. I mean, here in Canada and in Quebec, we are importing farm workers every year. Uh, we send them back. But in many uh, cases, these people are slowly able to get status and get papers. Uh, it's become harder to do that than it used to be. But um, still, if it wasn't for these migrant workers, we wouldn't have any workers at all. Uh, and that goes not only for farms, but for uh, meat packing plants. And today we all know about the uh, nurses' aides who are working in, uh, in you know, elderly uh, care homes where there aren't enough of these people. And uh, we've agreed in Canada to allow these temporary migrants and refugees to take those jobs and to use those jobs as a, as a kind of a ladder to get their stat permanent status in Canada and in Quebec. So in those ways, it's good. It's not only good for those reasons, but for cultural reasons, uh, to bring a variety of people who come and live in your country with new ideas, new cultures, new cuisines. Um, where would we be without pizza in this country and in North America? And, you know, if Italians never came here, there would never be uh, pizza or Chinese food or, or any of the other ethnic cuisines that, uh, that have succeeded uh, beyond their host, uh, beyond their host communities. Um, so uh, it's pretty clear that migration does offer advantages. Now, are the advantages more than the disadvantages? Um, <clears throat> the disadvantages are that the low-skilled workers who migrate to a country uh, offer competition for low-wage jobs with the native population. And there are some studies that say that uh, the arrival of large groups of people do uh, temporarily lower the average wage because of supply and demand of labor. But often over time, these, these uh, disadvantages iron themselves out, 
as people move up the wage ladder. A more serious problem comes when the type of immigrants who come to a country or migrants don't fit in well. And we see from Europe that uh, there are clashes between, um, often between newly arrived Muslim immigrants and uh, people in the host country. Some terrorist acts have been carried out by these people, um, etc. And uh, these uh, people lead uh, the native people to a kind of reaction or reactionary feelings whereby they feel that their country is being taken away from them, that uh, the new immigrants will never assimilate, and uh, that they're under siege and they don't feel at home in their own country. And these feelings have led to, as I said at the beginning, the establishment of right-wing political parties um, that are expressly anti-immigrant. Uh, and I can think of Holland for one, uh, Mrs. Le Pen's party in France for two, the alternative for Germany in Germany number three, uh, Mr. Orban's party in Hungary who, who built a chain fence around Hungary and said, you know, he would shoot any migrants who, who cr tried to cross the border from, um, from uh, Serbia. Um, um, uh, other anti-immigrant parties uh, have succeeded in Sweden, in part, some in Norway, even in Scandinavia and in Denmark. Um, it's a kind of a, a thing that is in Switzerland and in Austria, they also had anti-immigrant parties but, um, you know, Switzerland just voted in a referendum by 60 to 40 to uh, not um, uh, bar immigrants from coming into the country. Um, so this feeling in, in Europe has had a, a kind of a strong reaction. But, you know, as immigrants um, uh, assimilate slowly, and if there isn't too many new people coming all at the same time from the same place, this, these feelings sort of die down as people assimilate, get jobs, learn the language, and even intermarry with the uh, you know, native populations. So, uh, you know, Europe, as everywhere else, has been host to immigrants from the very beginning. And so, you know, today's immigrant becomes tomorrow's natives, and that's sort of how it goes in North America as well as in Europe. Um, what about the effect on the countries sending the immigrants? How about that? Um, so a lot of people speak about the brain drain, that uh, if you allow uh, sort of better educated immigrants from poor countries to come to the wealthier countries, you're taking away resources from those poor countries who then will lack teachers and doctors um, and, uh, you know, businessmen, and you're, you're sort of leaving the sending country with the bottom of the barrel and, and that type of thing. So that is a legitimate concern, for sure. Um, however, in the sort of mix of things, uh, even the sending countries benefit. And they benefit because, uh, among other things, um, if there is a high unemployment rate, uh, then people leaving those countries will, will create less of a supply of workers um, and uh, therefore the ones who are left there might benefit. We've seen that, uh, not in that context, but in the context in, 
of, of the, uh, in Europe in the Black Plague when so many people just plain died of illness that for a hundred years later, uh, wages went up because labor was in short supply. So similarly, if a lot of people leave an overcrowded country like Haiti or uh, some of the other Central American countries, Guatemala, El Salvador, uh, it might sort of open up more space for the people who are left. So that's one benefit. The other benefit is, as I said before, remittances or money sent by the, um, by the uh, immigrants to their families. It's a huge, huge help to many people. Some of the people receiving that money then build houses, open up businesses, shops, etc. And, and in that way, all of society benefits. Uh, the, the argument that immigrants take away jobs from Native people is one that uh, Mr. Trump has spoken about and which, uh, you know, when studied very scientifically, uh, although it's true in certain situations for a certain amount of time, in general, it doesn't work out that way. In general, it works out that immigrants are a huge benefit to the country receiving them. And you just have to look in the U.S. at, uh, at the, the founders of uh, Google and, uh, and Tesla and Elon Musk and Stephen Jobs' family came from Syria and uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Is, and, and I mean, just, uh, you know, one after another, we can point to the success of immigrants in establishing businesses in new, new countries and employing um, employing uh, natives in, by, the, by the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, you know. Um, the Vietnamese people who came to the United States following the uh, Civil War in Vietnam turned out to be a hugely successful wave of immigrants and uh, many of them ended up settling in um, on the Gulf Coast and opening uh, fishing uh, businesses and employing lots of Native Americans in them. The uh, Indian population, a lot of them, besides going into academics and becoming uh, professors and uh, teachers, uh, many went into the hotel industry uh, in, um, in the United States and opened up hotels and, uh, you know, of course, employ a lot of low-wage uh, American natives in those businesses. Um, you know, many different ethnic groups have their own specialty of jobs that they moved into. Uh, you know, not not the least of which uh, the Jewish communities and in, in the textile industries um, opened up huge businesses and other businesses as well. So, you know, when you look at the whole picture of it, immigration is and is a good thing. Um, uh, the what about the argument that you know new immigrants come and uh, receive benefits from the state, like welfare and health and education. And Mr. Trump has made it a point of saying, you know, he didn't feel that any immigrant who received any state aid whatsoever should be eligible to get citizenship. And clearly, when a new population moves into a country, they do need help for a while. But um, after a while, they more than repay the benefits that they've received. So let's me just to just um, finish by uh, asking you if you were an immigrant today and you wanted to move out of your country, what's the easiest country to get into? Um, the answer is Uruguay. 
Uruguay, and I mentioned this before in another talk, Uruguay is encouraging immigrants to come uh, and they've encouraged already 30,000 Argentinians to come. Uh, the Uruguay, Ecuador, Argentina itself, Brazil, um, these are the countries that are easiest, Panama and Bulgaria uh, in Europe. Bulgaria is the country in Europe which has lost the most population, one of the poorest countries in Europe. They have the lowest birth rate uh, just about. So their population is shrinking so fast that they've opened the doors to say, you know, anyone who is, you know, brave enough to come to move to Bulgaria is welcome. And so in Europe, it's the, the most single welcoming country um, uh, to get into. Some countries are easier to get into, as I said, but they don't give citizenship. So Switzerland is an example of that. All the, all the United Arab Emirates, the Gulf, uh, 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 Persian Gulf countries, Kuwait and Qatar. You, you can get in there to work if you have a job. Uh, it's easy to go in and there are labor kind of organizers that find jobs for people there. But these countries will never give citizenship to, to non-native people. Uh, Japan is another country very, very hard to get into because of its unwelcoming kind of nature, but they've opened up recently. But to get citizenship in Japan, again, is something that's uh, very, very difficult. Um, so uh, a kind of a quick overview about immigration and migration. It's definitely a subject which is uh, on people's minds today to, you know, uh, more or less. I mentioned that there are many countries that sell uh, immigrant rights or sell passports, we'll call them. And just today in the news, I read that uh, Cyprus agreed to stop doing that because, uh, as I mentioned in another class, Malta and Cyprus in Europe were countries that were offering passports for a certain fee, like a million dollars or half a million dollars. And then once you got that passport, you had the right to move and live in any European country. And uh, some of the other European countries were resentful that people could buy their way into Europe by just giving money to one of the small countries like Malta or Cyprus, and then go live in France and Holland uh, or Germany or the wealthier countries by right. Um, other countries, especially the Caribbean, poor Caribbean islands like St. Lucia and St. Vincent, uh, offer these passports to people without even the requirement to go live there. So, um, you know, sometimes uh, people from the Middle East uh, who have money or who have more shady backgrounds will buy these passports and then use them to be able to travel visa-free to many countries. Certainly not all countries, but many countries are, are open to, to live in uh, with a visa from one of these countries. Um, so uh, even Canada has, uh, has uh, applied this uh, idea of buying a uh, passport by making or buying permanent residency by making an investment. And in Canada, we have sold hundreds of thousands of these to people in Hong Kong, especially who want to live in Hong Kong, but who want to have a kind of a, an emergency exit plan. And people have bought these visas. Some of them have uh, obtained Canadian citizenship itself and have gone back to live in Hong Kong. 
And now the trouble is brewing in Hong Kong between China and Hong Kong. There are, I am sure, tens of thousands of Hong Kong holders of Chinese passports who are, who are uh, you know, packing bags or making plans and uh, who are renewing their ties in Canada just in case they have to make a quick exit. Um, you know, uh, Singapore is another country which is one of the most, uh, you know, when you ask people where would they like to live, if they could move to it, so Singapore, uh, along with the ones that I mentioned before, uh, come on the top of the list of people because it's a multi-ethnic, well-off, orderly, democratic country. And that's what people are looking for. They want countries not only that are well-off, like the Emirates, but a country where they could settle down in, have families in, and get citizenship in. Uh, the people who live in the Emirates and in Saudi Arabia are now finding out that uh, even though they may have lived there for 40 or 50 years and worked all their lives there, that uh, once there's an economic downturn and they lose their jobs, uh, their visas can get cancelled and then they have to go back to a home where they haven't seen, which they haven't seen in, uh, you know, maybe in a generation. So um, I'm uh, going to stop talking now, uh, thanking you very much for listening and see if you have any questions about this subject. All of us uh, who are listening to this program are the children of immigrants, immigrants ourselves, or the grandchildren of immigrants, or the great-grandchildren of immigrants. So our ancestors made a decision, easy or hard, to pick themselves up from where they were living and uh, go to an unknown future. And, you know, it's to their credit that they made this decision because, you know, all of us are here now. So um, let's hear if you have any comments about this subject. Hello, Mr. Dwaskin. I see a question by an, an anonymous attendee, and it says, can you comment on Americans immigrating to Canada both pre-retirement and post-retirement? Americans, yeah, okay. Um, Americans moving to Canada, we have had such an interesting interchange of people. Uh, Canadians going to the States and Americans coming to Canada pretty well since the foundation of both of those countries. One of the big waves of Americans coming to Canada was during the Vietnam War, where people wanted to uh, get out of the draft and um, move to, to Canada uh, for, you could say, ideological reasons to, you know, get out of an America which they felt was going downhill. In this day and age, under the Trump administration, there has been movement from America to Canada by people who didn't want to live in that kind of administration. Um, either some Canadians moving back to Canada who have moved to the States, or Americans applying to live in Canada uh, like that. We've always had a movement of Canadians going to America. People who, uh, you know, in the film industry, in the sports business, in the entertainment business, where there's such a much bigger market and people, some of them who are, you know, at the top of their fields in academia, going to American universities and uh, then getting jobs following that. So we have had this, um, you know, long interchange of people going back and forth. Um, I believe I read the statistics saying that there are over a million Americans 
living in Canada and over a million Canadians living in the United States. Of course, percentage-wise, you know, there are many more of us who live there, but um, it's, it's, it's definitely one of the more common um, interchanges of people, you know, in that, in that way. Um, had uh, some, uh, one uh, governor of Michigan was, as I recall, was a Canadian. And, you know, you, you all know in, in the American entertainment industry how many different Americans there are, uh, Canadians there are there not to mention a branch of the Bronfman family who moved to the States. Um, you know, it goes back and forth all the time. There's she. Yeah, hi, Howard. Hi. What, what, what was the attraction uh, that drove that drew the Moroccans to Holland? I, I, don't, I, I find that a fascinating uh, uh, history. What, 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 what uh, okay, so... Okay, the, the question was, uh, this is in modern times we're talking about. Um, there, is the, there was and there is a very large migration of people from Morocco, Muslim people from Morocco, moving to Holland. As well as, by the way, Moroc Moroccans also moving to Sweden um, and to other countries in Northern Europe. And it's mostly an economic movement. So... Um, uh, of course, there was loads and loads of people from Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia who moved to France um, uh, after independence because of uh, lack of economic opportunity, uh, in some cases because these people worked with the French administrations uh, in those countries, and that movement is ongoing until today. So we all know in France uh, of huge uh, North African communities uh, who are there, you know, sort of successfully or not successfully. Um, but uh, why Holland? Why Holland was because Holland was one of, at the time, a very liberal, open country. Um, Holland was one of the wealthiest countries in Europe, and they needed workers to work in, in industry and in factories and the shipping business of Holland, which is so big, you know, working in the ports, and um, Holland welcomed them. Um, you know, as it turned out, of course, there's always a few people who were radicalized and who, who uh, wanted to use their status to, um, to, we'll say, cause trouble or to uh, uh, motivate other people to um, do that. And if there is a bad contact or bad relationship between the native population and the new immigrant population, rather than going to assimilation and to, to, to acceptance of these new population, by, by discriminating against them and closing them off, they just reinforce their status as outsiders. And in order to achieve some kind of um, group status, these outsiders then can collect up together and uh, act as a, um, uh, you know, a milita mili militant minority group against the host country. And in some places this has happened in Northern Europe. Um, uh, but overall, as time shows, uh, these people have integrated, some of them intermarry, uh, some of them have achieved high political status in their own city, in their cities, their 
are Dutch people of uh, Moroccan origin who are on the city councils in Amsterdam and Rotterdam. Uh, so assimilation happens. It just doesn't happen right away. It could take 30 years, but it does happen. And uh, if you look, for example, <laughs> a good example is Ireland, where the um, prime minister is of Indian origin, Mr. Vardavar. So, um, um, you know, that's the sign of the future in a certain way. I wanted to ask about um, uh, uh, the reason why it, Trump says he cut off immigration from Mexico. He said they were all uh, the ones that were coming through the Texas and California border or what the border. Were, were they were a lot of criminals. It, were, right. it, is, there, is there any truth to that? No. Uh, there's excellent studies that show the percentage of people who are convicted of crimes, uh, convicted of felonies, a jail population. Uh, the percentage of people who are immigrants who are convicted of crimes is lower than the percentage of native people. Uh, in the United States. Um, Trump's motivations start from not wanting immigrants. Once you start from that point, then you look for a reason not to want them. And then you can point out uh, specific incidents, which do happen, where someone is killed or robbed or attacked by an immigrant and say, look at this case, they're all the same, therefore we shouldn't have any of them coming in. Um, you have to ask sort of why it is that Trump is so much against immigrants, although he says he want, he'd like Norwegians to come. You might remember that statement he made. Not many Norwegians to start with, and the last place they're coming to is the United States. Although there was an enormous Norwegian, um, you know, uh, immigration in the 19th century to Minnesota and North Dakota. You might not know this, but, um, you know, Norwegians and Swedes were starving to death in those um, 1850s and 60s and 70s, and uh, they just picked up and left uh, to come to the US in those years. But since then, Norway and Sweden have become you know, wealthy countries and they don't send out immigrants anymore. But to go back to Trump and his motivations, um, it's not a question in his mind of uh, Mexicans taking American jobs. That's for sure not. Uh, in fact, uh, Trump at his own hotels uh, employed illegal immigrants even while he was a president until, you know, some reporter found out about it and then he said, oops. So he's not there to defend the lower layer of American society from foreign competition, that's for sure. Um, the other question might be, well, is it because he knows that people of immigrant background generally will vote for the Democrats? And I don't, I don't think it's that either, because he was uh, giving this speech long before he decided to become a politician. Um, it's just a plain ethnic, um, uh, I don't know, prejudice, I guess you would call it. Remember that Trump himself came from German background. His grandfather, his, his grandfather, grandfather or great-grandfather, uh, immigrated from Germany. And I remember when I was in Germany not that long ago, and I, I picked up a package of candies, 
And the name of the company was Trump with the F at the end, T-R-U-M-P-F. That was the um, candy company. Um, but uh, after the First World War, his father told his family, uh, his grandfather told his family, don't say that you're from Germany, say you're from Sweden. So, um, you know, uh, the Trump history of, of uh, misrepresentation goes back to his grandfather's generation. Um, Trump's mother, Trump's mother was from Scotland, and uh, and in fact a Gaelic-speaking Scot. Um, his wife, as you know, his current wife, number three, is from Slovenia, and he conveniently gave uh, American citizenship to her parents. So uh, one thing he was complaining about is so-called chain migration, where an immigrant can come from a country and then bring their families and then those bring their families and it becomes like a chain. Um, Trump just has a kind of an anti-immigrant feeling except for people from his own family. So, um, you know, that seems to be his motivation. It's not, there, there isn't any other kind. He also, of course, mentioned uh, what he called S-hole countries uh, that he didn't like. And, you know, why take immigrants from those places? Because, you know, they're just going to turn America into a, an S-hole itself. And that was, that's kind of the way he thinks. You know, I was looking at some, I, the, I saw some statistics and it gave every single country in the world what percentage or how many people are immigrants living in that country. And obviously the poorer countries have almost no immigrants living in them. Uh, I bring up the example of Haiti where two-tenths two of one percent of the population in Haiti are immigrants from somewhere else, from another country, in other words. Um, you know, and compare that to, uh, you know, 70% of people from Qatar, uh, which is probably the world's richest per capita country, being from somewhere else. So there is a movement from poor to rich, that's for sure. Um, the question is, does the act of what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Are, are people who move to a country liable to make that country richer? Or is that country rich in the first place and that's why people move to it? And the answer really is both. Uh, immigrants have made countries richer um, that they have moved to. And you, know, you just have to look at the uh, US and Canada, for example, as, as good examples of that. Australia, New Zealand, other countries of immigration have prospered because of, uh, uh, of migration. Of course, there's always bumps along the way. You know, we can think of South Africa where the white people moved in as a minority from Europe and then sort of took control of the country and, uh, and put the blacks into a second class uh, citizenship or worse. Um, and so they brought wealth to themselves, but not to the general community. Uh, now that South Africa is uh, free, um, there are lots and lots of black people coming, moving from Zimbabwe and Mozambique and uh, other um, na uh, neighboring countries moving to South Africa precisely because South Africa is a better off country, um, uh, more liberal and more democratic. And there are nativistic um, uh, feelings in South Africa to say you have to keep these people out. And they even tried building fences along the border. And they did build fences along the border with Rhodesia to try to keep, with, sorry, with Zimbabwe to, uh, to keep 
you know, those people out. And, um, you know, we, we mustn't fall for the trap of thinking that it's only European people who are anti-immigrant uh, nativists, but all around the world, wherever there's a country, there's always people who say, we don't want other people coming into our country from that country. That, that you know, is something that goes everywhere around the world in, in the same way. Um, there's prejudice against immigrants. Uh, one of the biggest uh, hotspots uh, you might remember now is Myanmar and the Rohingya minority who, who uh, the people in Myanmar say migrated from Bangladesh and they tried to kick them out and did kick them out by the hundreds of thousands um, because they belonged to the Muslim minority and the, uh, the Buddhist majority just didn't want them in the country. So, you know, these sort of ethnic movements of people and prejudice and religious uh, persecutions leading to expulsion are not only found in Europe, but, uh, you know, pretty well all around the world. I saw a report uh, like two or three months ago about birthing tourism where women are pregnant yeah. in their right. second trimester and right. they pay 20, 30, 40,000 uh, dollars to come to Canada so their children could be Canadian citizenships and then maybe later on them becoming Canadian citizens as well. Mm -hmm. uh, they were mostly focused on Chinese people right. and in BC. What is your right. opinion about people coming into well, the country? And um, Okay, so many, many countries in the world have a law that says that if you were born in that country, you get automatic citizenship in that country. And the United States is one of those countries and Canada is one. There are many other countries that don't allow that. They say, no, 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 uh, you know, you have to earn your citizenship, not just uh, have the, the uh, sort of chance, fact of being born there give you citizenship. Um, you know, these laws were designed at a time when people never imagined that uh, there would be uh, birth immigrants coming to a country for that very reason. Um, this does exist. It, the numbers are not enormous because remember that when a woman comes to, say, give birth in a BC hospital, she has to pay full cost of the, of, of the um, uh, treatment. She has to pay her full fare. Uh, there's no loss in a way to the uh, BC uh, government for treating that person in the hospital unless, of course, she's taking the place of somebody who needs that you know, particular spot. Um, it isn't a huge, it isn't a huge, uh, what's troubling about it is that uh, it's a kind of an industry where you have middlemen who are the ones making the money, uh, you know, making the arrangements, so to speak, and taking a huge uh, cut of the money that's paid by the mother or the family to give birth in that way. Um, it isn't enough of a problem for Canada to make a different sort of uh, law, uh, say, forbidding a birth tourism. But they could. They could say, for example, that anybody born in Canada has to live in Canada for five years before they can get citizenship. You could, you know, always work yourself around in that way to prevent this from happening. It's just not a big enough problem to worry about at this point simply because of the cost 
of getting here and the cost of giving birth. Um, if this was a different country, if we were in Latin America and people walked across the border and gave birth in a hut, uh, that would be a whole other uh, story. But so long as you want to pay for first class medical treatment, um, you know, that money is coming into the Canadian economy that otherwise wouldn't be coming in. And um, uh, what's the harm, so to speak? Let's look at it that way. Thank you very much. Uh, I don't see any more other questions or any raised hands. Um, so okay. any last words for today's uh, lecture? Um, well, uh, I think I said before that all of us, all of us, actually every single person in North America is a descendant of migrants recent and not so recent. But even if we leave out the indigenous population, um, you know, the earliest people came here was so, you know, somewhere around 1500. So we're all, we're all relatively recent migrants. And I think it's wrong to uh, say um, that uh, once I get in, I want to close the door to everybody else. I think that we have to look at things in perspective and say, uh, that immigrants uh, in general are assets to our society. And I think that Canada and even Quebec are lucky enough now to basically accept that position. And I think we're one of the only countries in the world which does accept that position. Um, maybe Australia is too. Uh, so, uh, you know, the fact that we're a multicultural company, country just makes us wealthier makes us stronger, makes us more uh, diverse and more interesting. And um, we often know that people who do arrive in this country end up becoming the biggest boosters of the country because they are so grateful to have been given the chance to do it. And, um, and so we're just lucky. In Canada, we're just lucky to be in this country um, and to live in a country which welcomes uh, others and helps others. So that would be my last words. And, you know, thank you all for listening. I hope to see you uh, next week. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for listening today. My name is Daryl Levine. We launched this uh, podcast and uh, telephone broadcasting service at the end of March 2020. Of course, we had... Uh, closed our doors at that point. Uh, people could not come anymore to the library to uh, listen to interesting talks and so on. And this was a way of getting the content to you. Uh, one of the things that we did was uh, set up a telephone number that people could call into every day at 2 p.m. so they could listen to this if they either didn't have a computer or maybe they weren't comfortable using a computer. Uh, and of course, we also later distributed this show through the regular podcast channels that people uh, who listen to podcasts are familiar with. And maybe that's how you're listening to us today. So thanks for listening. Be well, stay safe, and we'll see you soon.